is Camilla and you're listening to The Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So let's roll! Hey everyone, welcome back to The Cat's Whisker. I'm Camilla and today we are gonna talk about one of the reasons why I started this podcast. Obviously, one of them is the chance to talk your ears off about some of the best musicians that ever lived. And I know that not all great musicians were rock and roll stars, but as far as I'm concerned, many of my personal heroes are. And today I want to talk about one in particular that is very high up there on the list of my favorite artists to ever exist. Buddy Holly. I can't even begin to explain how important he has been for today's music. Holly and his band, The Crickets, are considered the first ones to make the traditional band lineup that we all know, made up of two guitars, bass and drums, a standard. His musicianship and the fact that he was between the first to actually write and perform his own music were also a very important source of inspiration for many rising arts like the Quarrymen who recorded Buddy Holly's That'll Be The Day during their very first recording session before becoming the Beatles as an homage to the Crickets. And even if his talent and influence are undeniable, some might say that he became a legend only because he died young and in tragic circumstances. No, he's always been a legend and today I'll tell you all about him. But back to the beginning, Charles Harden Holly, spelled E-Y, was born on the 7th of September 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. His family of mostly English and Welsh descent with a small percentage of Native American ancestry was quite big. Charles nicknamed Buddy by his mother who thought Charles sounded too big for a little boy was the youngest. His family absolutely loved music and even if they weren't professional musicians they always supported their kids music inclinations. The Hollies brothers would in fact perform in local talent shows where sometimes Buddy would join in with the violin. Although funnily enough, he couldn't play it. So what happened was his brother Larry uh, would grease Buddy's bow so that it would make no sound. After being a rather accomplished violin player, Buddy tried the piano but quickly switched to guitar when Larry brought one home after his service during World War II. It didn't take long before young Buddy decided to record his version of My Two Timing Woman in his house in 1949 when he was only 13. It was around that time that Buddy decided to play music with his school friends. Friends such as Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison. And both of them would then become members of the Crickets, with Allison, the drummer, being the only ever member to feature in all the lineups. Buddy would also team up with Bob Montgomery and gig with him around Lubbock as Buddy and Bob. They were influenced by bluegrass, country, blues and a new genre called rhythm and blues. What was really new about their music and the crickets and Buddy Holly's music in general is that alongside performing and recording covers, they were writing their own songs. Which, as I've said many times, was quite new. It was a relatively new business and especially when rock and roll became popular, adults weren't really big fans of it. 
But what I love about Buddy Holly's story is that his parents, Lawrence and Ella, really believed in him. Pushed him to pursue a musical career, gave him songs ideas, and even wrote a letter in defense of rock and roll fans to a local conservative newspaper. After graduating, Buddy decided to become a professional musician, playing everywhere locally, gigging in high school talent shows, clubs, and appearing sporadically on local radios and TV shows. And as it happened to many musicians, his style completely changed when he saw Elvis for the first time. That crucial shift to rock and roll would be complete once Holly was chosen to open for the King three times in 1955. Can you imagine being 18, fresh out of school and opening for Elvis Presley? That would then lead to the big breakthrough of his career when in October 1955, Buddy and his band opened for Bill Haley and the Comets. And it's thanks to that performance that just a few months later, Buddy would sign a recording deal with Decca, specifically with Coral, one of its subsidiaries. And because of a typo in the contract, Holly became Holly, with just a Y at the end, a name that would become his new stage surname. This new opportunity take Buddy and his band to Nashville, where they recorded demos and singles under several names. Buddy Holly and the Two Tones, or Buddy Holly and the Three Tunes. And soon they released their first single, Blue Day's Black Nights, with Love Me as a B-side. Unfortunately, even after recording and releasing a few other songs, the band didn't prove to be successful enough, and Decca decided to drop them as artists, insisting they wouldn't record the songs they worked on with any other label for five years. And even if being dropped after barely a year didn't really feel great, Holly was relieved in a way because of the lack of creative control he had while working for Decca. His producer, Owen Bradley, who had worked with many country music stars, always insisted on arrangements that were leaning more towards that genre rather than rock and roll. This would then motivate Buddy to find someone like-minded, able to produce his songs, respecting his vision. He would then find his match in Norman Petty, who would become both his producer and manager. The band now was starting to shape up in a more definitive way. After several changes in the lineup, Buddy Holly on lead guitars and vocals, loyal drummer Jerry Allison, bassist Joe B. Moldin and rhythm guitarist Nicky Sullivan became the Crickets. Officially creating a band allowed them to avoid the strict rules imposed by Decca and record the same songs they had recorded before. Just a version that they really liked. That's the case of the incredible song, That'll Be The Day. So let's talk about it. First of all, it was written by Jerry Allison and Buddy Holly in 1956. They called it That'll Be The Day because that's one of the lines that John Wayne says the most in the Western film, The Searchers which I guess inspired someone else as well. Since when they wrote it, they were still Decca artists, their first recording of the song was a bit slower and more leaning towards country. But Decca never released it because the band wasn't really successful in the charts. When the Crickets recorded it again, though, it was clear that the song was going to be one of the cornerstones of rock and roll. Buddy Holly was now on lead guitar, playing an intro that is now legendary on his Fender Stratocaster, a revolutionary solid body guitar that must have looked like a spaceship in those years. In 1957, That'll Be The Day and its B-side, I'm Looking For Someone To Love, was released under the name The Crickets. It quickly became number one both on the Billboard Top 100 and in the UK charts. Thanks to its success, Decca decided to release the first version of the song later that year. 
So, basically there were two versions of the same song around. One by Buddy All in the Three Tunes, released by Coral, and another one by the Crickets under a New York-based label called Brunswick, which funnily enough, belonged to Decca as well. Needless to say, when Petty and Holly discovered this little fact, they were both quite relieved. So now Buddy Holly was signed to two different labels at the same time, with Coral as Buddy Holly and with Brunswick with the Crickets, and was topping the charts with two versions of the exact same song. After That'll Be The Day, the Crickets started appearing everywhere. On radio and TV shows and big prestigious venues such as the New York Apollo Theatre where they played for a very skeptical black audience that immediately loved them though when they started playing Bo Diddley. That same 1957, they appeared on American Bandstand with Dick Clark while they were in New York, where they also became good friends with the Everly Brothers. The Crickets then, under the name Buddy Holly, released another single for Coral, Peggy Sue, and its flip side, Every Day. A very interesting song, musically speaking. Buddy Holly is playing an acoustic guitar and Joe Moulding is on stand-up bass. But what's particularly unconventional is that in order to keep the soft tone of the song, a celesta was added. Quite an unusual instrument for rock and roll. And since drums would have probably covered its sound, Drummer Jerry Allison kept the beat just by slapping his knees. Norman Petty's idea of having the same people released under different names was actually quite clever, I'm not gonna lie. He thought that radios wouldn't want to give too much airtime to one single band, but if the performers appeared under different names and labels, that would have ensured more airtime. A month later, in November 1957, their debut album, The Chirping Crickets, was ready to be released. It was a big success and contained songs that are not afraid to define masterpieces. Oh boy, Not Fade Away, Maybe Baby, and many others. Keith Richards once said to Rolling Stone, Buddy Holly was in England as solid as Elvis. Everything that came out was a record smash number one. By about 58, it was either Elvis or him. It was split into two camps. The Elvis fans were the heavy leather boys and the Holly ones all somehow looked like Buddy Holly. And that's another thing that I've always found fascinating. Buddy Holly's success in those years probably meant a lot to many people that were just your regular teenager and wanted to play in bands. Seeing Elvis with those sexy dance moves, blue eyes and irresistible features probably made being successful as a rock and roll artist a mission that just a few felt like they should attempt. But Buddy Holly looked like a normal person. He was wearing glasses and big ones. Even if many people tried to persuade him to change his frames or not to wear them at all, that made him look like a normal person. Of course, he was immensely talented and that was what mattered. And as a musician, Holly was definitely versatile. From his scratching voice in songs like Ready Teddy to the soft true love ways, with his signature hiccup style and his ooh ooh that characterize most of the songs of his repertoire. And don't get me wrong, I admire all members of the Crickets, but Buddy was definitely the star. In December, the Crickets performed at the Ed Sullivan Show, but unfortunately, right after, they had to deal with the first big obstacle. After just a few weeks from their debut album, rhythm guitarist Nicky Sullivan decided to quit because he realized the life of a touring musician just wasn't for him. 
Now imagine, after years of gigging and playing and bad record deals, you finally land a great contract and your songs climb the charts. You get so successful that you manage to appear on some of the most famous TV shows in the world, right after releasing your debut album. And that's when one of your bandmates decides that that lifestyle is just not their cup of tea. I'd be furious! But hey, the show must go on and the crickets continued as a trio. And the following year, 1958 was absolutely crazy for the band. In January alone, they went on two tours. The first one in mainland US during the first part of the month, then they briefly stopped to record Rave On on January the 25th, then on January the 26th they appeared again on the Ed Sullivan Show, and the day after they flew to Hawaii before starting a tour in Australia alongside Paul Anka, Jerry Lee Lewis and Jody Sands. During the spring, they famously toured in the UK, where they played 50 shows in 25 days. In the audience watching this show were probably young members of the Rolling Stones, who will later have their first hit in America with Holly's Not Fade Away. And unfortunately, and quite curiously, even if Buddy Holly played the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool, none of the Beatles actually went to see him. Once back in America, whilst the Crickets were on their US tour, Buddy Holly's self-titled solo debut album was released. It obviously featured the other Crickets as backing musicians and it contained, again, absolute masterpieces. Like the already mentioned Ray Vaughan, Reddy Teddy, Peggy Sue and Every Day. But also You're So Square, Baby I Don't Care and Words of Love, a song that even the Beatles would include in one of their albums. During the summer of 1958, though, everything changed. Buddy Holly started to go to New York more and more often for solo recording sessions, discovering more of a jazzy and rhythm and blues taste. This is also the same period when I recorded one of my favorite songs, Now We're One, a song that I would definitely play at my wedding. And talking about marriage, the summer of 1958 was pretty eventful under that point of view as well. Because that's when he met Maria Elena Santiago. I've already talked about their love story a few months back when I dedicated an episode to the day the music died. But allow me to talk a little bit about Maria Elena and Buddy's love story here in happier circumstances. On June the 19th, 1958, Buddy Holly and the Crickets had an appointment at their publisher's office. The first person they met on that day was Maria Elena Santiago, a 26-year-old woman from Puerto Rico who moved to the United States a few years before. She was working as a receptionist at Pier Music inside the famous Braille building. And as soon as Oli saw that girl behind the reception desk, he knew he had to ask her out. So they went on a date and five hours later, they were engaged. They got married on August the 15th, just two months later. At first they live in Holly's hometown, Lubbock. And while he was there though, the cracks in his relationship with the Crickets and Norman Petty started to show. The manager and producer, first of all, didn't approve of the wedding, but most importantly, was starting to act strange. Petty was in control of all the Crickets' money, and even if they had toured extensively and sold very well, the band members weren't really in the greatest financial situation, to say the least. As it turned out, Petty was struggling to repay the crickets because he was redirecting all the band's proceedings into his own account. And at the same time, Manny Greenfield, a New York promoter for Holly's concerts, decided to sue the artist because he wanted a higher payment. Payment that Holly wasn't able or willing to provide since Petty had created this absurd situation. 
and that led to an amicable split between Holly and the Crickets in October 1958. Whilst the rest of the band stayed in Lubbock, Buddy and Maria Elena's new address became apartment 4H, Brevrood Apartments at 11 Fifth Avenue in the Greenwich Village, that he also used as a home studio. New York definitely energized Holly, who now wanted to create his own label and record new music. This new chapter of his life started with the String Sessions, which also became sadly known as the last studio recording of his life. On October 21st, he teamed up with the Dick Jacobs Orchestra at the Pythian Temple on West 70th Street and recorded some of the most touching songs of his career. Moon Dreams, Raining in My Heart, It Doesn't Matter Anymore, and one song that he wrote himself, The Incredible True Love Ways. But even if his career was definitely getting more and more established, his bank account was frozen due to pending legal issues. But he didn't let that stop his enthusiasm. Professionally, he was particularly excited about his new life in the Big Apple and all the great opportunities he could have. He was planning collaborations with great artists such as Mahalia Jackson and Ray Charles. And in his private life, he was just happier than ever since Maria Elena was expecting their first child. So, to earn more money for his family and get a well-deserved fresh start, he decided to go on tour. A tour called the Winter Dance Party, commonly known though as the Tour from Hell. I've talked about this tour in detail in my episode called The Day the Music Died, because as many know, that's the tour that would be fatal to three great artists, Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. The Big Bopper, and our dear Buddy Holly. So if you want to know more about it, that episode covers the complete chronicles day by day of that tragic tour and the incident that took the life of these three great men. And since, as we've said, Buddy's reasons to go were obvious, Maria Elena's reasons not to go were clear as well. She always went on tour with him. But being on a tour bus zigzagging through the Midwest in the freezing cold is not really ideal if you're pregnant. And actually, it's not ideal in general. Because in fact, the headliners, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Dion and the Bellman, and the Big Bopper had to literally sleep on luggage racks while the heating in the van stopped working every two days. The route the tour was following didn't make any sense. The acts had to travel up and down the Midwest for a month without even a day off. And oftentimes they would even arrive late to the venue because the old yellow bus they were using was completely unreliable. And that's why, out of exhaustion, frustration and even hunger, on February 2nd, 1959, Buddy Holly suggested chartering a plane. That would have taken them from Iowa to the next leg of the tour in Minnesota in just a few hours. That way they could finally sleep a little, have a nice meal and do some laundry. And on that night as well, February 2nd, 1959, the Surf's Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa would witness their last concert. After playing, Valence, Richardson and Holly quickly got to the airport and boarded a plane. The weather conditions were terrible. The pilot, Roger Peterson, was not qualified to fly during the night time where you can only rely on instruments. And the plane he was assigned that day was a model he had never flown. The flight, departed at around midnight, lasted less than five minutes. The low clouds and the new gyroscope made it impossible for Peterson to understand where he was going. And while he thought the plane was gaining altitude, he was inevitably flying towards the ground at a very high speed. The wreckage was found the morning after in a field, not far from the airport. The four people on board, lying in the snow. And what's even more tragic is that the media picked up the story before the authorities had the time to inform the families about the incident. 
Maria Elena Holly switched on the television that morning and learned about the death of her husband from a newscaster. She often admitted that she actually blames herself for what happened because she knew that if only she had been traveling with him, he would have never got on that plane. I can't even imagine how horrible it must have been. They got married only six months before and now he was just gone. As a result of the trauma she had suffered, she miscarried the following day. Even the other acts on tour with them who took the bus to Minnesota discovered what had happened through the news. And what's even sadder is that they had to play that night and continue the tour. Imagine having to be cheerful and make everyone dance when the only thing you want to do is probably either punch a wall or sit in your room and cry over the death of your friends and colleagues. February the 3rd, 1959 has been described in Don McLean's American Pie as the day the music died. And many consider it a pivotal moment for rock and roll the end of the first inauthentic rock and roll era that also coincided with the start of an eventful decade for the United States. The Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassination, Vietnam. The day the music died was just the start of an era that would slowly attack a nation's innocence. After Ollie's death, several of his new songs were released and the crickets kept playing and recording songs. They backed the Everly Brothers in 1960, topped the charts in the UK in 1962 with Don't Ever Change, a song written by Carole King and Jerry Goffin, and continued their collaboration with several notable musicians for years. To keep Buddy's legacy alive, Maria Elena Holly has opened the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation, a charitable institution that provides musical education to young musicians from all backgrounds. As I was saying at the beginning, it's impossible to sum up how much Buddy Holly meant to music, or simply to us, rock and roll lovers. He simply was a pioneer, he didn't look like a rock star. And yet, this is one of his biggest strengths. Because you don't need to look like a rock star to be a rock star. And that is what representation is all about. He was showing the world that you can be cool as fuck even without being Elvis. And I know I've always been partial to Buddy Holly. Sorry, Elvis fans. But I think it's incredible that this guy, who was famous for literally two years, managed to change rock and roll and influence so many artists. And no, I don't think he's a legend only because he died young and in a tragic way. He was, like John Lennon will be later on, a legend all the way through. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I absolutely love Buddy Holly and I'm actually very excited and what got me inspired to write this episode is also the fact that this week I'm gonna go and watch the Buddy Holly story in Manchester. So I'll keep you updated on that as well. And of course, if you wanna be updated, you can follow me on my Instagram, the Cat's Whisker podcast, and on TikTok at the Cat's Whisker. And also, very big announcement, I'm on YouTube as well. Well, if you're listening to me on YouTube, hey, hey, <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, if anyone wants to follow my channel, it's obviously called the Cat's Whisker podcast. Uh, that would really, really help me immensely. But I thought I should open a YouTube for all those people that find it hard to actually listen um, to a podcast through an app. So if you want to listen to me there, please subscribe to my channel. And I'll see you next week. Ciao!